Thanks, Bert Turnell. Thank you very much. Great job as always. And uh, all right, everyone, could you turn your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1? So we're going to wrap up the Divine Warrior Psalm to, in this second session. As you can see, we'll be looking at Habakkuk 3.15, which teaches us, prophetically speaking, that the Lord Jesus Christ will destroy the unrepentant Gentile nations at his second advent. So this is quite a description of the Gentile nations. You don't see it there because he's using figurative language. As we'll see, it's the same kind of language that you see in Daniel and Revelation, as we'll see in this lesson. So it's basically talking about the nations in turmoil with each other, and then they're going to uh, try to uh, take on uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his armies at the second advent. So interesting class here as we wrap up this divine warrior psalm. And as I said before the, uh, the opening prayer in the first session, uh, we'll be wrapping up Habakkuk uh, March 3rd, Sunday, March 3rd, and then we're starting a new book, going to go back to the New Testament. We're going to start uh, in on First Thessalonians Sunday, March 10th. And of course, on our Wednesday classes, we're doing the Day of the Lord series. So if you've been going to the Day of the Lord classes or listening to them online or whatever, through the podcast or whatever, uh, the website, you, uh, you'll, you'll, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about in Habakkuk 3, uh, you'll, it'll catch your ear and help. In that Day of the Lord series is going to help you understand this book, uh, as far as this section of the book, this prophetic section. So, uh, and also remember, uh, the last Wednesday of each uh, month to, that falls on the 28th this year is uh, we have our cor corporate prayer meeting, and I think I failed to tell you what time it is. That would be helpful if you knew the time. It's at 6 o'clock, so I know a lot of people are at work or they're dealing with the kids, picking up, the, doing something. So if you can make it, great. Um, it's a uh, half hour before the, uh, the service starts, so it's 6 o'clock if you can make it. We'd be getting a great turnout. I, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it so far. All right, so um, let's, uh, we're going to pray, as we always do before the second session, not only uh, for uh, the lesson, but we're going to pray for the offering. So with our heads bowed, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you've given us this great privilege to express our love and appreciation and gratitude to you for all that you've done for us uh, through your Son, the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, your Son and the Holy Spirit in our past at our justification, and what you're doing for us now through them and will do for us in the future through them. And uh, we just thank you for the, the finances that you've given to us that we are basically stewards of. There's all the silver and the gold, uh, the field, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills is all yours. The earth is yours in all its riches. And you give to your, this, your wealth to those who you see fit and, and whatever you see, uh, see fit to give them. And we just thank you, Father, for those who will be taking part in this offering that are good stewards with their, their finances. And we just pray, Father, that it will reflect, uh, be a great um, reflection of our love and gratitude uh, to you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we uh, uh, also pray, Father, for... Uh, this lesson, and we just as we wrap up our study of this divine warrior psalm, I pray you the Spirit would use us mightily here in the chapel. I pray you would help me again by the Spirit to communicate with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power your full counsel today with regards to Habakkuk 3:15. I just pray, Father, that uh, help me to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. I know I can do nothing without the Holy Spirit. Uh, the message is empty and meaningless if it doesn't have the Holy Spirit using it. So help me to accurately interpret and to communicate its contents and uh, the application of what we're ta uh, talking about here in Habakkuk 3.15. I also pray that you would work your, through your people mightily by the power of the Spirit. I thank you again for each and every one of them that you purchased with the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray the Spirit help them to learn, understand, to concentrate, and to make the proper application to prayerfully consider the passages and principles that we're noting here today. And I just pray you would break down any barriers that Satan and his kingdom might be uh, attempting at this particular time from uh, prevent them from hearing your word and concentrating and, uh, and enjoying what they're being taught and to rejoice and, and worship you and your son, Jesus Christ, which we're here for, Father. So we pray for this uh, service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. It says in verse 1, prayer of Habakkuk the prophet in Shigayano. 
Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise and rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth and he looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in a distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, and the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Selah. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning with great, the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. And this is for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 15, my translation, our verse for the second session. You will certainly trample the sea the raging great waters with your horses. So Habakkuk 3.15 brings to a close this fantastic, poetic, and prophetic section of Habakkuk chapter 3, and uh, which began, as we pointed out, in verse 3. I believe, and I've reiterated this many times in this study, and we actually spent one hour on why this particular section is not only prophetic, but also echoes the mighty acts of the Lord and the Old Testament on behalf of Israel in her past. Now, Habakkuk 3.15 contains another solemn, prophetic, poetic statement. Uh, you hear me say solemn a lot with these statements and stuff like that. Well, the reason why there's solemnity in these verses and these prophecies is because the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using the figure of a syndeton. There's, if you notice throughout this particular study, there's, there's no and or now or buts that often between these statements. That's, that's connective words like that in the Hebrew. You don't see anything like that because he's trying to, when he uses this figure, he's trying to express the solemnity of the statements that he's making here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which are poetic and prophetic of this, the, the events of the 70th week of Daniel, in particular the last three and a half years of the 70th week, and also, of course, the second advent of Jesus Christ. So Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 15, contains a solemn, poetic, prophetic statement which asserts that the Lord Jesus Christ will trample the seas, the great raging waters, with his horses. And as we'll see, and it's because he's using apocalyptic language and poetic language, figurative language, this is a figurative reference here in verse 15 to the Lord Jesus Christ destroying the unregenerate Gentile peoples and nations during the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel and his second advent as a figurative extension of a horse trampling on something much less powerful than itself. So, uh, as I said many times in the past, uh, when we come to interpretation, this uh, hermeneutics, the study of uh, the art and science of studying the Bible, we use hermeneutics and we read the newspaper. Uh, in, in your line of work, you don't really realize it. So when we come to the Bible, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God-breathed, as we pointed out in our doctrine of inspiration. However, it's also a human book. And it uses human, God uses human language, and uh, he uses uh, different types of literature. Uh, as we saw, this book is pretty much, it's a, lyrics to a song, it's poetry, uh, but we have prophecy in it, and we also, uh, throughout the whole book, uh, the two, first two chapters have been fulfilled in history. 
and uh, we, the chapter 3 awaits fulfillment in the future. So we have this, uh, we have epistles, we have apocalyptic literature like Revelation, and this section of Habakkuk is apocalyptic, as we'll see. And with that, what does that mean? Okay, and we have uh, the book of Revelation, as I said, Daniel, apocalyptic, Zechariah, many of that, much of that is apocalyptic language. And we'll talk about again what that means. And this is very important because we won't understand what the writer is doing if we don't understand these literary genres. Okay, so you got to know principle of uh, interpretation is not only you compare scripture with scripture, you go back to the original languages, and uh, you, uh, when you do that, and also study the Bible in its historical context, you got to study the Bible in its literary context. So, uh, for instance, uh, as we'll see today, you know, it says uh, uh, the second advent of Christ in Revelation, he come, Jesus comes back and a, a sharp sword comes out of his mouth. Is there going to be a literal sharp sword coming out of his mouth? No. Why? It's apocalyptic literature. But what is it saying about it's, it's something that Jesus is going to do? Well, it just it means this. When Jesus says something gives a command to kill somebody, it's done. It's powerful. It's omnipotence. Whatever he says gets done. That's the whole point of the figure. So it's very important we understand that. You know, the Bible, like vine of the branches. I'm the vine of the branches. Is he lean? He's a literal vine? No, so you got to pay attention to that stuff. So some people get crazy, especially when they get to Revelation, and they get all kinds of crazy interpretations because they fail to understand we got apocalyptic literature here and figure of references. Okay, so we'll, we'll, I'll explain today why this passage is apocalyptic and figurative uh, references to the nations when he talks about the raging seas and the water and the oceans, okay? And it, we have to go back to Revelation, and, and Revelation 17 talks about, it gives a definition of, of in Revelation 13, uh, to, uh, to put them together, it helps us understand this passage. Because this passage, is, again, we determine is prophetic of the second advent of Christ in the 70th week of Daniel. So we see that, uh, first off, the word for sea there, if you look at your Bibles and the uh, NIV, start with that. If you look at verse uh, 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great water. So the word for sea there is the word yam. It, it literally does mean the sea because the word in a literal sense pertains to a large body of salt water partially enclosed by land. Thus, literally, it literally refers to the various bodies of salt water on planet Earth in contrast to land. In other words, the oceans here. Thus, it refers to the ocean. So, however, however, the word is used in a figurative sense, and I'll explain why. I've got my reasons. I'm not going to pull this out of my hat, as some people, people some guys do. You've got to explain to people why this is. Because, And again, I've said this a million times. Don't just say, you know, just as Dr. So-and-so or Pastor So-and-so or Bill, Pastor Bill says this, that doesn't mean I'm right. I have to be, I, you have the Holy Spirit. First John chapter 4 talks about this. You can discern between truth and error. Okay, and so you have a volition, and you you might not be at my level of knowledge, so it might take a little while to come to my align aligning of thinking and interpretation. I don't expect you to believe every single thing that I say because you might not understand everything yet. Okay, I doubt it. So what I say is this: you have the Holy Spirit, and you can the Holy Spirit. I'm supposed to be following His direction, interpretation, and communicating. So you have to use your mind. And to think and to compare scripture with scripture with me and check out what I say. That's why I give, go back to the original languages. If I have to go say, well, the, the Hebrew says this, okay, or the Greek, I explain that. And then with the modern translations, we have, we, you have the word of God there. All the modern translations are fantastic. And so, uh, so you don't really need to be a Greek scholar as a layperson. You have that scholarship already in your hands in black and white and English. So, but the thing is, you got to do the work. You got to go back and check me out. That's why I give chapter and verse, compare scripture with scripture. Okay, so we're supposed to love God with our whole heart, mind, whole mind. Uh, love God with the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind. That's all up in your brain. The Bible talks about that. It doesn't talk about your cardiovascular system. And I get when people go like this, they mean they're talking about their emotions or, you know, their sincerity. But when the Bible talks about that stuff, it's in the brain. You've got to use your mind. And as I said many times, we get the dumbing down of America and dumbing down of Christianity as well. Because people don't want to think they're passive with the television generation, the internet, video games, gaming and stuff. And we got people just don't want to think anymore. We're conditioned not to think. Basically, to make us slaves, really, is what the devil wants. So you and I have to go and think, 
All right. So I'm going to give you my reasons as to why this is a figurative reference when he talks about the sea. It's a figurative reference for the unregenerate Gentile nations of the earth. So this is very, very important that we follow now, uh, have our thinking cap on. Now, like the noun yam sees in this verse, the word mayim, which is uh, the word for waters, is used here in a figurative sense for the unregenerate Gentile nations of the earth for the same reason as I gave you for the former. And this interpretation is first of all supported by the context because I keep reiterating this and this helps us interpret verse 15. We're talking of something that's prophetic here. It's yet future. Habakkuk 3 verses 3 to 15. It's future of the, it's prophetic of the future events of the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ. So therefore the sea is being personified here representing the unregenerate Gentile nations who will attack Jesus Christ at his second advent. Furthermore, furthermore, the sea in Revelation 13.1 is also a figurative reference to the unregenerate Gentile nations which will exist during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ, and that's indicated by Revelation 17.15. So let's look at these two verses on the board, Revelation 13.1 and the New American Standard. And the dragon that Satan stood on the sea, sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, okay? And that beast is the Antichrist, the first one. Having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, on his heads were blasphemous names. So the, the, the beast, I, mean, I said it before, and the Daniel's the same way. Kings and kingdoms are often synonymous. They've merged together. So yes, that's the final stage of the Roman Empire, that beast. But as if you read further in the chapter, it's clear that he's, he's associating this kingdom that's coming out, that's represented by this first beast, and the Antichrist is the beast, because he, he, uh, he gives personal pronouns for him in the rest of the chapter. In fact, we might as well go there. Look at Revelation 3. I want you to see it. I don't want you to get confused. Revelation 13.1. Go there, please. This is a phenomenon. People who are students of prophecy see. Kingdoms, you see it in Daniel. We do Daniel. See it in Revelation. Kingdoms and their rulers of these kingdoms are very, are very often merged together. Now the context will determine if, if the person or the ruler is involved or the nation as a whole. So Revelation 13.1, obviously, it's got to be talking about a nation. So Revelation 13.1, it says at the very beginning, it says, And the dragon stood in the sand of the sea, uh, shore of the sea, and that's anti uh, the, the, the devil is the dragon, of course. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, the final stage of the Roman Empire. How do we know that? Ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. Then it says this, the beast they saw resembled a leopard but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion and the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne. Okay, so now it's talking about the person here. The throne and authority, okay? A nation doesn't have a throne, okay? And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. Okay, that's the assassination of the Antichrist. Remember, there's a counterfeit resurrection that takes place. But the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. And so then it goes, to say, it goes on to say, men worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and he also, they worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast, who can make war against them? But I took you to verse uh, Revelation 13.1 because of the context in which we're talking about in Habakkuk 3.15, the sea, okay? So he's talking about the sea, and I said before on this point on the board that in Revelation 13.1, the sea in Revelation 13.1 is also a figure of reference to the unregenerate Gentile nations which will exist during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ, and that's indicated by uh, Revelation 17.15. So Revelation 17.15 says, watch it carefully, it says, and he said to me, the Bible interprets itself, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, okay? He's defining for us what that seas and these waters are about, okay? Apocalyptic language, figurative language, pay attention to the literary genre, pay attention to the context. He's telling us in the book what he means by the sea. You can see it in Revelation 13, 1, okay? Nations, peoples, they're involved here with the sea, the great waters, okay? Satan's sitting on the, standing on the seashore. Satan, he's before these nations. Who's the god of this world? Satan, okay? Very important we see that. So the sea 
The sea in Revelation 13.1 refers to the Gentile nations, as we can see from Revelation 17.15, gives us the interpretation, indicating that this beast that we see in Revelation 13.1, the very first one in the chapter, is a, is a Gentile kingdom, and the ten horns refers to the ten-nation European confederacy, according to Daniel 7.7, which is the revived form of the Roman Empire. It also corresponds to the revived form of the Roman Empire because it corresponds to both the feet of iron and clay and the image that appeared in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel chapter 2, verses 40 through 43. Also, uh, it also corresponds to the ten horns in Daniel's vision, uh, recorded in Daniel 7.7, which, both of which... Uh, as we noted, represented the Roman Empire. And also we see Antichrist will be a Gentile since he arises from the sea according to Revelation 13.1. And again, the sea according to Revelation 17.15 depicts the Gentile nations, so he must be Gentile in origin. So keep reading with me. Look at, uh, look at verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for two, 42 months, three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Compare this with Daniel chapter seven. He speaks boastfully against the most high, Jesus Christ, the Antichrist does. So now we're not talking about the final stage of the Roman Empire, a, a kingdom. We're actually talking about the one who's gonna rule the kingdom now. What's telling us this? The context. So then it says he opened his mouth to blaspheme God. A nation doesn't do that, right? And to slander his name and his dwelling place and to those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, it says. And he was given authority over every tribe and every uh, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity you go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. For this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the, the saints, the believer. So we see here that uh, Antichrist will be a Gentile because he arises from the sea, according to Revelation 13.1, and the sea, according to Revelation 17.15, depicts the Gentile nation. So Antichrist has to be uh, a, a Gentile. In fact, we know more from Daniel 9, 26 and 27 that he will arise from the Roman Empire and be a Roman dictator. Look at Daniel chapter 9. We've been in that chapter quite a bit in our Day of the Lord series. Look at Daniel 9, 24. Actually, just look at verse 20. Yeah, verse 24. We'll go there. Start there. Daniel 9, 24. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy-sevens, 490 prophetic years, as we saw in the beginning of the lesson, the first lesson, we talked about it. I gave you a little synopsis of the 70 weeks prophecy and the 70 week of Daniel, which comes from this prophecy. Seventy-sevens, 490 prophetic years are decreed for your people, the Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish transgression, that's the corporate sin of the nation of Israel, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and then to bring an everlasting righteousness, the millennial reign of, of, of Jesus, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. The we seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And as we saw in the chart in the first class, we see the decree of Artaxerxes Longomanus that in history corresponds to what we just see here in this chapter, a cha verse. Compare that with Nehemiah chapter 2, which just describes this decree by the Persian ruler. Uh, 444 BC, that starts the 70 weeks prophecy. That's the decree he's talking about. And the Messiah, the prince who's until the anointed one, the prince who's to come, that's Jesus Christ's triumphal entry. All right, and he says there's going to be, if you look at the passage again, he says uh, it'll, uh, in verse uh, 25, and there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So we saw that the seven weeks, the seven sevens, are 49 prophetic years, uh, equivalent to seven weeks in this prophecy. And then on top of that, contiguous with it, we have 62 weeks, all right, which is equivalent to 434 years prophetically. Add them up, you have 69 of these weeks in 483 prophetic years, and they've been fulfilled in history, okay? The first 69 weeks 
for what 83 prophetic years have already been fulfilled in history. Then we get into verse 26, which talks about the events after the 69th week, that, which will take place, that have been literally fulfilled in history, and will take place before the, sec, uh, the, the 70th week of Daniel. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. That's the, that's the, pr the prophecy of Jesus Christ's execution at the hands of the Romans. And will have nothing. That means the king, he won't come in with the kingdom. He won't, he won't have the kingdom at that time. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people who destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary were, of course, the Romans in 70 AD. And there's a ruler who will come. He comes from these people. And this ruler is the, is the antecedent of the word he in verse 27. He's the closest antecedent. He, who's that? The ruler that comes from the people that destroyed Jerusalem and the, uh, the temple, Herod's temple. In 70 AD, by the, the Romans did that. So he's a Roman. He will confirm a covenant with the many for 1-7. That 1-7 is in the prophecy, the 70th week of Daniel, which we've been talking about in Daniel, uh, Habakkuk 3, verses 3 through 15. So it says he will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination. It's actually in the plural in the Hebrew, plural, that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out. So uh, in Habakkuk chapter three verse fifteen. So I took you all those passages to support my point that we're talking about. When the raging waters, the sea in Habakkuk 3.15 is speaking of unregenerate Gentile people. Non-Jewish racially, they're not saved. So in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 15, the phrase raging great waters in my translation, homa, maim, rabim, that is uh, translated raging great waters, and it's in apposition to the prepositional phrase vayam. Uh, and vayam right here, and that's translated sea. So it's, it's, it's an apposition to that, the first expression, the raging great waters is in apposition. That means it stands right on top of and defines for us the prepositional phrase. So this means that the former, the expression the raging great waters, it defines specifically for the reader, you and I, the, the prepositional phrase which is translated the sea in our passage. And it's specifically, it defines for the reader the reference of the raging great seas, which we noted is a figurative reference to, for the unrepentant, uh, unregenerate Gentile nations and peoples on the earth during the 70th week of Daniel and in particular the second advent of Christ. So therefore, this appositional clause is describing these unrepentant, unregenerate Gentile nations and peoples on the earth during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ as raging against themselves. And uh, in the nation of the, the nation of Israel and the Lord Himself. So it's again, it's talking about the rage of the nations with each other and against the Lord. If you notice something about what's going on in the world today, you look at you know talk about you, you know how long has it been since we had a world war? Since nineteen what forty six was the final and the World War Two with the bombs. 45, excuse me, and uh, we see, because uh, Ted Williams came back in 46 and hit 400, but uh, after the war, but uh, we see that, uh, that, so we haven't had, so there's a lot, of been a lot of bad blood been brewing, okay, yeah, we had the Cold War, and we have all these other proxy wars and everything, but really, there's a lot of bad blood, even in our country, I mean, there's even talk about a civil war in our country, I don't think there's going to be armies pitched against each other, uh, I don't think that's going to be the case, if there was a civil war, I'll tell you right now, the South would win. <laughs> the North wouldn't have a chance. The cities are falling apart. They got, well, we won't go into that. So the South would win this next war if there was a civil war. I'm telling you right now. Uh, one, because I'm down here now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> You were waiting for that to come out. Anyways, I hear my mother here. She goes, somebody said that. That was good. <laughs> That's what my mother would say. That's my sense of humor from Massachusetts. You, you probably got... Uh, praying for me on that one. But uh, so we have this uh, rage. You, know, you look around the world of violence in our cities and the rage. I mean, I told you this guy I was talking to, he was in San Diego. He's a, Na a Navy guy. He says, used to be San Diego used to be a beautiful city. He just like, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I love, I've been to San Diego. It's a beautiful city. Oh, perfect weather. And he says, well, I went there uh, like about six, seven years ago with some, I don't know what it was. And he said, what a stupid idea I had. We'll walk to go to this restaurant or this thing after dinner. We'll walk to this other place. I figure what it was. He says, what a mistake. You know, you, you got the opioid situation. You know, you got the people. I mean, you can see it on there. There's people like this on the street. 
They're everywhere. They're drugged out of their minds. And this is everywhere. In, this, in, the, in, the, in Boston, is overrun too. In New York, all the major cities in the north, they're all, all overrun with this kind of garbage going on. It's a terrible, terrible situation. Okay? And you have all these crazy people with these crazy ideas about the way the world really is. And, you know, nobody's working and nobody wants to work. And everybody's on medication because they can't handle the stress of life. You've got alcoholism raging, drug abuse raging. It's a disaster. It's a disaster going on in the country. We, I mean, we're looking, like a third, we're looking like Pakistan and India, some of our cities now. And major cities, beautiful cities. San Francisco, they're moving, they put, all the businesses are pulling out of San Francisco. It's a, it's a war zone. It's an absolute insane asylum up there. There's something wrong with the country. There's a lot of rage going on. There's a lot of people who work hard, okay, and pay their taxes, and you know their tax dollars are getting thrown into these programs to help these people. Are you kidding me? How are you helping those people? You're, most of these people, you're enabling them. They're drug addicts and alcoholics. Not all of them. The sad thing is the people who need help, they're not getting it because they're abusing the system, these other quacks. It's a disaster. We're a disaster. We're economically, it's a disaster. Business, business are pulling out of San Francisco. They ran out of San Francisco, San Diego. They ain't doing business there anymore. There's no law and order. There's rage everywhere. And the people who are doing the, who are working and are honest and pay their taxes and work hard, they're getting upset because I'm sick and tired of looking at this. I'm sick and if you fought for this country and you love this country, you're sick and tired of looking at this. And there's rage on their part, and rightly so. I call it righteous indignation. It's not right, something's going on. You can see it's a powder keg, powder keg in the nations of the world where they're, think about this, all the ungodly thinking of Satan's cosmic system. I told you, it's like McDonald's. Whatever you want to worship, I got it for you. We're not going to worship this Jesus like those Christians, okay, who are mucking up the waters for us because this could be a utopia if it wasn't for the Christians telling us we can't have abortions and we can't just have sex with everyone we want and do the drugs and smoke pot all we want. You know, they're just screwing up the whole thing. I can't stand it. We had to worship this Jesus the exclusion of all these other gods that we like, money and, uh, you know, and that sex and entertainment, all this stuff. Yeah, we've, that's the way we feel, to the exclusion of your gods, which are false. All right, so we see have, there's all this world running on the devil's way of thinking, independence of God, so you got all, say, how is that working for the world for the last, since the fall? Okay, where the devil is the ruler of this world. How is it looking? It looks like a disaster to me. Because God created everything. It's his world. It's his air. It's his water. It's his money. That house of yours is his. Everything in this planet is his. And we're just, he's just giving it to us as stewards and how we're handling that. And so here, here we have a world of people who Christ died for on the cross. Suffered the wrath of God for these people, okay? And we used to be one of them. Deceived by the devil, deceived by sin, self-deceived, self-absorbed. Oh, my gosh, the self-absorption of people in this country. You know, you know how you see this? The whole woke thing, and you get the, uh, what is it, the, uh, the uh, everybody's hypersensitive. You can't say, you can't express your opinion in this country. It's like, you, I'm offended. Oh, you poor sweet thing, you're offended. Oh gosh, don't I have freedom of speech? It's all freedom of speech in this country. And it's like, I'm gonna say what I wanna say. Okay, you don't like it? Well, well you know, just tolerate my opinion. I tolerate your stupid opinions, which are out of the pit of hell. You notice that about that? So some of these people, they're so intolerant, uh, they, they want you to be so acceptive of their lifestyle. But if you so much as say, I disagree with you, oh, they'd chew your head off, some of them. Well, that's called intolerance. You know, the Constitution of the United States is brilliant. It says, it, 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 it actually says, dissent is a good thing, okay? It's a, it, it protects us against tyranny, okay? But we have this, we have this culture now where if you, if you demonize other people, one party, the Democrats and the, and, the, and, the, and the Republicans, there's all this demonization going on, and, and we have, you have people, because you, your view is not mine, well, you are, you know, 
I'm going to speak evil of you. I'm going to go, I'm going to tear your head off. And I don't want you to, you know, I don't want you to have your freedom of speech and your freedom to make a decision, but I want mine. And you've got to tolerate. I mean, that's just talking about self-absorption. So you're offended. I'm not offended. I mean, people say all kinds of stuff about me over the years. I don't care. You know why these people care? They're self-absorbed. They're driven by their flesh. They want everybody to love them. And it's a disaster. We got a world with, we got a Z generation. This is going to be incredibly, we're in a dangerous situation. I mean, I told you before, my sister-in-law, Nancy Kenny, my brother Jimmy's wife, she said, the Japanese, the Japanese, I'm back in World War II, we should have, the, the, the Chinese and the Russians should attack us now. Do you think those kids right now would fight? No. Excuse me, I gotta get my medication, I gotta go. I mean, you can boot camp, and you know, you're trying to train these people. I, I gotta get my medication, I got the anxiety here. You're giving me anxiety, the drill sergeant's giving me, I mean, that's the kind of stuff, it's insanity, but that's what's going on. <clears throat> they can't handle anything. I mean, we're so soft, and the world is, a, it's a, so we have this powder keg. With all these people living ungodly ideas because they, they bought the lies of Satan's cosmic system and that the truth, they rejected it in Jesus. They rejected the gospel. So now you have all this tremendous bad blood brewing in the world, in our country, and it's this place is a powder keg ready to explode. It is. And everybody in this country, if they have a, any kind of self-awareness of what's going on, they sense it. There's a powder keg ready to go off. We're due for a world war. I'm not wanting one, right? but it's due for some kind of war to come. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's the tribulation war is, is World War III, right? the Armageddon campaign. I hope that is because that means I'm out of here and I'm not here for that last war, that World War III, if this is the next. World War III is the uh, Armageddon campaign, the tribulation. So they're raging against each other. We see that they're raging against each other. We see that... Uh, this appositional clause here in Habakkuk 3.15 is describing these unrepentant, unregenerate people, the Gentile nations on the earth during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ as raging against themselves, the nation of Israel and the Lord himself. You know, you look around the world today, people raging against, you're starting to see more than ever before in our country. So you can't see it as much in the south. It's there, I'm telling you right now. But you go north. I told you, I've never had somebody, much less in a cigar shop, thank you, thank, thank me for my service. I thought I was in the, am I in the military? You're thanking me for my service. I'm not, I'm not in the military. But they still down, they do that down here. I've had several times in Massachusetts. <laughs> they laugh at people like me. They hate people like me. Okay? They, 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 I'm, I'm demonized up in the North, in the media the liberal media. People like me, pastors, they, 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 you watch all the TV shows. When any time you get a pastor in these TV shows, he's a blazing idiot. He's Mr. Milk Toast, and he's just this little wimpy guy. Oh, gosh. Are you kidding me? But that's how they characterize you, because they're trying to brainwash the culture. You can't trust these pastors. That's why when I come down here and they see me smoking a cigar, wow, I, I, this guy from Michigan, he was a police officer. Oh, he told me something. Oh boy, about that 9th January 6th thing. Oh, would you, I'll, maybe I'll let the slip you in the inside scoop on that one. He was in the police force of Washington, D.C. He told me a lot of cool things. So he was, he's, he's like, man, I, I, you know, I'm not saying this to, like, I'm a cool guy, like a cool pastor. I was like, I, I, my, the guy I took over for, he's like 90 years old. He showed me this place. We're, we're two hipsters, me and Pastor Peak. We're two hip pastors. But the rest of them, I'm telling you, these, these people, they see because their perception of a pastor, he can't be just a regular guy. I'm a regular guy. I'm no different than any guy in this place. And so, oh, if I only married Pastor Bill, oh, he's like, no, you, I'm just like the rest of these guys here. Just ask their wives, okay? I need the grace of God, too. I'm not perfect. Oh, no. My, my dickens know here. They know I'm not perfect. That's for sure. So, no, everybody's saved by the grace of God just like you. But the people, they want to, they want to, they, they think that their view of pastors is not regular guys, that they're either wimpy, they got no backbone, they got no conviction, they're just trying to be like, you know, they're glorified social directors, which unfortunately, a lot of pastors are now. They're glorified social directors, CEOs of corporations. Who are they? Okay? 
That's not the case for all of us. So this attitude, it's pervasive in our culture, is so contrary to the Bible, so contrary to what you and I believe. So you, when you study the Bible, you study the Bible? Really? I mean, when I used to go to Bob's church, he was teaching Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays, and Friday, and Sunday morning and, a- and evening. And the colonel told him, you need to cut back on the schedule. He didn't, he should have, he eventually did when health came in, health problems came in. That was, that was gonna happen. So, he, so people say, you're gonna go to Bible class on a Tuesday night? And then you're gonna go Wednesday? Yeah, I love it. And we, you know, Rex and I were talking about, you know, Bible study is exciting? Yeah, I love it. You kidding me? I used to love going to classes and everything. You know, get a teacher, you know, won't make you fall asleep in the seat. But, you know, it's like, some of these guys, they don't, they don't have, you, you could tell if a guy has enthusiasm for the word of God just by the way, you can't fake that, okay? You can might fake it, some guys may be able to fake it for one or two classes or maybe a couple of months. But if you've been around me long enough, you know, I love this. I can't, this ain't, this is fun. I mean, I got to, I got to, you say, you might be saying, oh, this is a low crowd today, right? To me, this is a packed house. You know what I had in Iowa? <laughs> in Massachusetts? They want to come up and show up. If I had, there was some times, if I had five people in a class, I'd be like, oh, thank you, Lord. Now I walk in here, so it was like a low crowd, 30 people. I, I'll take this any time of day of the week. You kidding me? I'm loving it. But the world, Bible study? So there's so much antagonism. The world is enraged at Jesus, really. It's not you and I. It's the God that indwells us that he's ra- the world's raging at. And the devil, the father of them all, he's raging against Jesus Christ as well. There's a lot of rage here. It's building up. It's going to blow, okay? So we see that uh, the, the, the expression, when it talks about your horses, look at Revelation, Revelation. go back to Habakkuk 3.15, first of all. We'll go back there. We're getting near the end here. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 15 says, You trample the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Now, the expression for horses there in the Hebrew text, uh, the word, uh, the expression is suseha. And this, it's translated your horses. And it's, an, it's, it's actually an instrumental means in the, in the Hebrew. It indicates that by means of his horses, the Lord Jesus Christ will trample the unrepentant, unregenerate Gentile nations and peoples during the 70th week of Daniel and his second advent. However, as was the case in Habakkuk 3.8 and Revelation 19.11, the horses here in Habakkuk 3.15 are not literal. It goes back to what I said at the beginning of the hour. But figurative, because the language is poetic and apocalyptic. Look what it says in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 8, my translation. Is the Lord angry with the rivers? Is your anger against these rivers? Is your wrath against the sea so that you ride on your horses, your chariots, or deliverance? Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven open, standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. So it is apocalyptic language here. He's not going to literally ride on a white horse. He'd be riding on something else, maybe. Okay, so Dwight Pentecost, J. Dwight Pentecost, one of the great, uh, oh gosh, he was a great Bible teacher. He passed away at 90-something several years ago. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was a contemporary of Wolverd, Schaefer. He's a contemporary of the Colonel, people like that. So he, and J. Vernon McGee, and this guy did a, thing, a book called Things to Come. Get it in your library. Best thing on prophecy, it was written in the 50s, and it's still good today, which is quite, quite interesting. So he writes the following, help us understand what, we're, what I'm talking about here. He's talking about apocalyptic language. He says the Greek word, uh, which is apo, uh, apokalupsis, which means, it means uh, actually an unveiling, a disclosing, a revelation. You see this word in the Greek text used in the New Testament in relation to the rapture. And he says the following, he says, though all scripture is revelation, from God, certain portions are unique in the form by which their revelations were given and in the means by which they were transmitted. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible has several characteristics, he says. One, he says, in apocalyptic literature, a person who received God's truths in visions recorded what he saw. Two, apocalyptic literature makes extensive use of symbols or signs. Three, 
Such literature normally gives revelation concerning God's program for the future of his people Israel, which is the case in Habakkuk, right? Number four, prose was usually employed in apocalyptic literature rather than poetic style, which was normal in most prophetic literature. Well, in Habakkuk 3, we have something unusual with prophecy. It's poetic. So we're, finding, we're, we're studying actually a very interesting passage because it's poetic poetry. And then he goes on to say Pentecost. In addition to Daniel and Revelation, apocalyptic literature is found in Ezekiel chapters 37 through 48 and Zechariah chapter 1 verse 7 all the way to Zechariah 7, 8. In interpreting visions, he says, symbols and signs in apocalyptic literature, one is seldom left to his own ingenuity or to discover a truth. In most instances, an examination of the context or a comparison with a parallel biblical passage provides the scripture's own interpretation of the visions or the symbols employed. We just saw that in Revelation with the sea. We know it's talking about the Gentile nations and peoples unregenerate because seven, Revelation 17, 15 says that. Okay? And then he closes with this. He says, apocalyptic literature then demands a careful comparison of Scripture with Scripture to arrive at a correct understanding of the revelation being given, end of quote. So it goes back to what I said at the beginning of the hour, hermeneutics. Uh, you heard the colonel use the ICE principle, isagogics, talking about the study of the Bible in its historical context, categorical, you compare Scripture with Scripture. That's, that's, that, these are all principles that uh, he's not originated, didn't originate with him. That's, we, everybody knows about that that's in uh, evangelical conser conservative circles. Everybody knows that. And exegetically, go back to original languages. Okay? So, you know, so I, so you also throw in there, and he, he did the ice thing because it was simple to remember these, these three basic things, but there's more to it than that. Literary context, okay? What kind of literature are you reading? It's important to know you're reading apocalyptic literature and Revelation and these passages in Zechariah and Daniel and back to chapter 3, right? Because if you don't, you're going to think that Jesus has is, is literally got a sword coming out of his mouth. He doesn't, okay? It just says his word is power. In other words, when he gives the order to wipe something out or kill somebody, it's done. It's good as done. It's, he, the person's dead. Okay, in the case of Antichrist and, the, and his enemies at the second advent. So, as we close, apocalyptic literature in the Bible uses symbols to describe literal persons and events. For instance, again, Revelation 19.15, the Lord is described as having a sharp sword coming from his mouth. This is not literal, but figurative language of something real. God's, the Lord's power in speaking uh, command or getting something done. In the same way, when Habakkuk 3.8 describes Jesus Christ as riding on his horse John chariot or riding on his white horse in Revelation 19.11, both Habakkuk and the Apostle John are using apocalyptic literature to describe his second advent when he destroys his enemies. He will not be riding literally on a white horse or a horse-driven chariot. The white horse symbolized in the ancient world conquest of one's enemies. That's why he rides on the one horse because he's a conqueror. Okay? And the Romans at that time would say, oh, he's going to be a conqueror. So that's the language in both passages emphasizes with the reader, you and I, that the Lord will literally, he'll literally wage war against his enemies and will be victorious over them. So he's talking about Jesus waging war in apocalyptic figurative terms, poetic terms, okay? So therefore, the reference to the Lord Jesus Christ riding on a white horse in Revelation 19.11 and riding on a horse-driven chariot in Habakkuk 3.8, as well as riding on a horse in Habakkuk 3.15, is apocalyptic language. However, horses are symbolic of a real mode of transportation, uh, a, a, a real mode of transportation the Lord Jesus Christ will employ when he leaves the throne room of heaven and returns to earth at his second advent. Now listen to me. What that mode of transportation is going to be, literally, the word of God doesn't say. Okay? Now, here in the 21st century, we could say that the horses and the chariots are symbolic language of some, for some type of vessel or craft that can travel through space and fly through the Earth's atmosphere. Or it could be something altogether totally different because this is all speculation. So, as you heard me say many times in the past, I'm not going to speculate. I have no idea what he's going to come flying in on. He might just, as God, he maybe this. Okay? Maybe we, I don't know, but we could probably, as a resurrected body, come in without any kind of vessel or any kind of thing to ride in on. 
because we're in, we're, we're in a resurrection body. He's the son of God. Who knows what it's going to be like? It doesn't really matter. What matters is this. He's coming back to wage war with us, the elect angels, Old Testament saints and resurrection bodies, all tribulational martyrs and resurrection bodies. And this is what we need to know. We're going to win. The war is good as done. It's the, bit with the, tie, the time is getting set. The stage is being set for the events of the tribulation period because we know that. Think about it. Israel's back in the land. 150 years ago, people were saying, this, how could this ever happen? Israel's not even back in the land. Israel's back in the land. You have Europe attempting to unite. In a lot of ways, they are. Okay? You could see there could be a United States of Europe, a final stage of the Roman Empire. You could see the Roman Empire getting back together. In fact, they've been trying to get the Roman Empire together with Napoleon. I mean, how many people? Hitler actually wanted to bring back the whole Holy Roman Empire back. People don't realize that. So they've been trying to do that, but it hasn't been successful because God hasn't permitted it yet. So you have Israel's back in the land. You have the technology, okay? You have the technology for the mark of the beast. There's so many things right now that they could, that, 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 that you read Revelation and you read Zechariah, you read Daniel. You say, I could see these things. We have the technology for that. But the big thing is Israel's back in the land. There's the stage is set for the, the final stage of the Roman Empire. We're just, we're just waiting for the church to get the heck out of here. That's mucking up the waters. And that's imminent. We could, we, and we're safe from this time. That the worst period of history. But I, it's just fascinating here. We're coming in with him to start the kingdom. And I just, you know, I was thinking about this. You know, when we're coming down and whatever what we're flying in on, or, you know, just, I don't know. And we're coming in, it's like, and we're watching them, firing at us, raging with each other, turning their weapons off of each other. China and the armies of the Far East and the Antichrist, United States of Europe. And they, they point their weapons at us. I mean, it's going to be the most exhilarating thing. And you knowing that they can't hurt me. <laughs> I got God in front of us. <laughs> I mean, is this, are you serious? This is like, it'd be kind of like, I don't know. It'd be like winning the Super better than winning the Super Bowl. What'd you think? You know, I watch these guys, Tom Brady, and I love Tom Brady in the sports. A great documentary on them on Apple TV. But here's the thing. It's nothing compared to the exhilaration of coming in with the Lord at his second advent to start the kingdom and kick some butt. And you know, think about it. All that's been going on from since the fall of Adam, all the heartbreak and the war and the disease and the injustice and the crime and the drugs and the alcohol and the sex and the illegitimate children and the children murdered and, and you know, abused and all the garbage that's been going on since the fall, okay? All the way up. And finally, one day, it's coming to an end. There's a, there's a good, a beautiful ending to the story. Christ reigns on the earth. You know, people say, oh, you got a, you got a, a bad view on the world. Because I I talk about the tribulations. Uh-huh. You didn't let me finish. The whole purpose of all that is that Jesus is going to start the kingdom. He's going to move the devil and his people off the face of the earth and take over here on the earth with his people. And now we're going to see how the earth should be really run and how the United States of America should really be run and China and Russia and Israel, all the nations. We're going to finally find out what it's really like. In fact, if you're an overcomer, Revelation 2 and 3, as a believer and you're faithful in this life, you, everybody's getting into the kingdom. You're the bride of Christ. You're getting in no matter what. You're in the millennial reign. Okay? You got your ticket punched. You're in. You're coming in. But they're only going to be the overcomers that are going to reign over certain cities in the tribulation period. So be nice to Sally, because Sally might be one of those overcomers that she's running New York someday, or Huntsville, or could be Kirk, or could be Holly over there. Imagine Holly taking over Tennessee, the state of Tennessee. I mean, or Memphis, or I mean, or Gene Ellen. You never know. Victoria, she could have Boston. Who knows what's going to happen? But you, your, your decisions now will determine your rank in eternity. It's real. You're going to reign. He says, I'll give you, I'll let you rule over the nations, Revelation chapter 2, as a reward. So whatever we go through, we're in the devil's world. You've got to have some pushback, guys, right? If you're in the fight, if you're a soldier of Christ Jesus and you're, you're not A-W-O-L, absent without official leave in the body of Christ, and we have a lot of A-W-O-L uh, believers out there in apostasy running away from the plan of God. 
doing the guy in the old red badge of courage. Hopefully they come back and make the fight. But don't be, be, be one of those people that's in the fight because it's a great reward. Momentary light affliction is going to produce in us an eternal way of glory. What do you think that eternal glory is? You know what the exhilaration it's going to be? Being rewarded for your faithful service? And then he says, my faithful servant, I want you to take this city. You rule it. And then we're going to find out how the city should be run. Not the way they're being run in America today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this, this class would be a great blessing to people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to apply and, and understand the significance of what we've been taught here today in Scripture, your Holy Scripture. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I pray you do a mighty work for, through all of us here as we spend the rest of our days uh, in our, doing what we need to do, but also reflecting upon this great future and this terrifying future for the world, but a great future ultimately for us as the body of Christ and the future bride of Christ reigning over this earth for a thousand years, restoring mankind back to its position which it was designed for in the beginning with Adam and Eve, namely to rule over the works of God's hands. In our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I'll sing us a song and we'll get out of here.
Dismissed.